0: Welcome to the Redemptification Podcast, where we focus on inspiring people and communities and starting conversations around the topic of redemptification. Redemptification we define as the creative work of redeeming a person or place to its intended beauty and glory.
1: I'm your host, John Marsh, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ty Maloney.
0: All right, welcome to the Redemptification Podcast. Uh, you have Tom Maloney today. Um, I'm actually the co-host with John, and uh, so I'm very glad that uh, he, uh, he's allowing me to be with you. And uh, I have a great conversation today with Thomas Daughtery and Bo Wright. I think what we're going to dive in and dig in on today is actually this kind of, we're going to really talk about today the land use that we're kind of seeing in the landscape of churches today. So I'm excited about that. Um, but first I wanted to introduce these guys to you. So, so I've got Thomas Daughtery with me. He's a, he has an architecture background. He's a, he, he got his degree from Notre Dame, both a Masters of Architecture and a Masters of Urban Design. And then I also have Bo, Bo Wright. Bo actually comes to us. He has worked uh, at Strong Towns. And then uh, he stepped away from Strong Towns to be an executive director and uh of a main street organization and what town was that bo that you were there
2: in kennett square pennsylvania
0: square yeah and so he's he's currently stepped away from that uh from that job to pursue his own he's actually both him and thomas are working on some really unique things and then bo's also he's an aspiring developer he's got some projects he's working on so that's exciting so Thomas, why don't you go first? Why don't you kind of give uh, a little bit more color to your background so that uh, the listeners kind of know kind of who you are?
1: Thanks, Todd. Uh, yeah, the the architecture and urban design thing. Re- relatively you new. Know, I grew up on a small farm uh, in Ohio along the Ohio River. Uh, regenerative farming, big um, construction with my brothers. While there, you know. We built all of our own things. We built all of our own barns. So that transitioned into just kind of general construction uh, post-university. I studied uh, history and philosophy at Franciscan University. And then after that was a uh, timber frame for a little while and really got disenchanted. I, I'd been intrigued with and inspired by, uh, let's say, the German and Austrian towns that I had studied abroad in. And I was trying to chase that integrity, the authenticity, the beauty, the durability. So that's why I got into timber framing as opposed to general construction. And working on, you know, multi million dollar pool houses was not what had inspired me. So going back to school to study urban design, you know, what about these villages and towns? What about the load bearing masonry? What about that? How can I bring that? To the table to the United States. How do I work on that kind of project? And so still on that mission, uh, as you said, I did uh, study architecture and urban design and I'm now exploring opportunities with Bo to try to bring uh, some of that to the States.
0: That's awesome. So your your firm is called Inner Block Studios, which I, I find that name really interesting. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about what you mean by that inner block that
1: yeah, inner block design studio? That really gets down to, you know, as a country in the United States, we're, we're spread out and our blocks are spread out. The, the American block, the American urban fabric is an experiment. It was part of an Enlightenment thinking. And so when you get Philadelphia, it's the first planned city in the United States. It's at the scale, first, you know, large plan of, of London and Paris. They're designing, they're laying out something that had not been built before right it was something that was really spread out among other things and in the late 1700s we got the continental grid and there, there thomas jefferson and others in an effort to sell property and and advance the settlement of the west quickly we platted basically from the ohio river westward all on the same lines and so you get these thought experiment you know from the you know Utah, you were just talking about the development you're doing in some of these small towns uh, in the country, and you're dealing with blocks and you're dealing with lot sizes and all that. Well, where does that come from? As soon as you get private property, it's very difficult to change that fabric, the shape of that fabric. That small town could burn down. Those private property lines are still going to be there. And so you're going to get the streets in the same spots, the alleys in the same spots, the lot lines in the same spot. So when did that start? And why do we have these places, these shapes, the scale that we do. And so I was really pursuing that in school. You know, when you go, when you fly across the Atlantic, you hit a different scale. You hit a human scale over there. And I think um, we're so often enchanted by that. You know, it, it sparks so much. Uh, it sparks a sense of home, I think, very often, too. You're walking down these beautiful uh, uh, town and, si- and and city streets or, or village streets uh, in, in Europe. And then we come across and we want to recreate aspects of that. And we forget the fact that every street we want to recreate that on is probably about five times as wide, six times as wide as what we saw over there. And so the name of the studio and the, and, and really my pursuit inner block is looking across the country and recognizing in that continental grid that spread across the country, there's one human scale right away. That's the alley. And if there's a way to transform that alley into a street then we can start to get that pedestrian scale street. And it's not just the alley, but if we want to create human scaled places, those spaces are going to be inside of the blocks we've inherited. So if you're in Kennet or if you're in Westchester, where I am, we've got a lovely street network. But if you want to introduce human scale into the mix, if you want to introduce a lot of the types that we got from europe you're gonna to have to do that within the block so my pitch is that uh the inner block is the place where your town and city's most beautiful human-scaled urbanism is waiting to be built
0: wow yeah that's fascinating i think man i love it and the, uh, you know i i think we could probably do a whole podcast just on talking about that, <laughs> that whole basically your thesis there and and also like asking thoughtful questions why why do our towns and even as we've kind of suburbanized our towns, the, the generally the economics that have driven that, you know, how do we reverse that? And because uh, I think about the alley from almost like a, you know, a placemaking standpoint. The first thing is, is like, well, how do you get, you know, how do you get feet on the street? You know, those small you're thinking about small retail. And so there's a whole nother conversation, I think, there that I think some of our listeners would be interested in. It's like, well, that sounds great. But how do you actually activate an alley? you know and then how does it fit under you know a larger economic thing we've actually you know had a lot of success when i think of alleys and activation we've had some success with what we call micro retail it's been really interesting to see that um we have a little project here that we've done that has been it's actually the economics on it has actually been fantastic um but anyway another conversation another day Bo, um i want to jump in and you know you got you had a background you you worked with strong towns obviously it's a you know, those guys have have a strong voice. Um, They've been uh, really, I guess, uh, almost like a a voice in the wilderness in in terms of some of these larger, uh, you know, uh, conversations around around town building and communities. Um, But uh, you also, so tell us a little bit about your background and share with the listeners uh, kind of what you're interested in right now.
2: Yeah, yeah, I can go back a little bit uh, before Strong Towns, and I think it's somewhat relevant for this conversation. So I actually studied in undergrad, uh, basically theology, New Testament theology. So my undergrad essentially came from a seminary, um, was planning all throughout college. I worked at uh, a few different churches, was planning to go into the ministry. Um, I think I was always, even at that time, I was interested in in towns and cities and sort of how churches uh, contribute to the good of their cities, neighborhoods, all of those things. I got just kind of obsessed with this idea of like civil society and how do we, how do we, um, how do we be good neighbors? What is the, what are sort of the foundations of civil society Uh, that led me down a path of kind of studying public policy and some other stuff, but I was always interested in spaces and that's really where I connected with strong towns um, sort of with the, urbanism new urbanism type movement um so and then you know spent uh, a few years with strong towns hanging out with some of the, uh, the best sort of urban thinkers across the country meeting thomas was a real sort of revelation to be honest to me because he he has this way of describing sort of human scale uh that take that's that's been a sort of transformative step for me beyond just sort of new urbanism grids and cities and how they're laid out he's sort of change the way that I look at, at land, at spaces. Um, so that that's, that's been, that's been great. Um, and then yes, now working on trying to work on some real estate real estate projects, really at that human scale, how do we create magical human scale places? Again, a lot of that is picking up off some of the stuff that Thomas was just talking about. How do we, how do we, you know, um, in real estate, this is something Thomas always says, but in real estate, uh, you know, the value of land is location, location, location. Some of the stuff that Thomas is talking about allows us to sort of create our own location. When you can create the inner block, when you can, um, you know, shape the space and the space between those buildings, you can create your own space and create your own location. And I think you can do that for a lot less sort of money and effort than, than people think by, by, by shaping those spaces. So that's what, um, what we're focused on. Um, again, come from a sort of theological background. Some very interested in bringing together this passion for sort of urban design and and um, human scale and neighborhoods, but then also with uh, um, you know passion for uh, the church and theology and how churches uh, engage with their neighborhoods.
0: Oh, man, it's great. It's good stuff. So today, what brought us together is that we we are all three, um, especially you guys. Y'all y'all have had some interesting interactions uh, as of late around really this this idea is is how are how are churches currently stewarding their land or their buildings or facilities and then what what is changing for churches in the way they see their built environment and I think I think this is a question that I think there's uh needs a lot of thought really and uh I want to I want to kind of kind of if I can I want to try to set the stage for the conversation and i want to kind of pull some some different experiences that I've, we've we've had as a company, um, where we've been asked to add value to to churches specifically who we are asking the same question. But I think some there's some interesting stats that that I think around setting the stage that that came. Um, there was a document that was published not not too long ago called the Great Opportunity Document. And I just want to read some of these things. Uh, one of the one of the stats that that came out of that document. Well, just to go back, for, for those that are interested, we'll, we'll dive deeper in this conversation. The Great Opportunity document is a, it was, um, it was, a, it was, it was a document that was commissioned by a private foundation, uh, so it was an independent report, but, but, it, but basically they're saying that this that what we're looking at in, in America right now is almost the largest gospel opportunity. Um, they're estimating that over 40 million young people who are raised in Christian homes could walk away from the church by 2050. Uh, and so basically this report's calling churches and believers to action. And they kind of dive into like, well, part of that is, is that we're the church used to be almost, and we were talking about this before Thomas it used to be that when we looked at a community and you looked at what kind of framed that, that main square, well, in, in the early kind of history of towns, it was the church. And then, and then it transitioned to, Civic government, and then now the question is, what is it now? What are we creating? Entertainment districts and other things, and obviously business CBD um, is becoming that kind of like. Well, this is what this is the destination markers. This is where you when you've arrived to a community. But I think some interesting stats that came out of the the Great Opportunity Document I think is worth talking about is it says that four thousand churches start every year, and thirty seven hundred churches close every year. So the one that pops out to me is that we have thirty seven hundred churches close every year means that there's 3,700 churches that likely have land and facilities. So the first question you ask yourself is, well, if there's 4,000 that are opening at 3,700, there should be a net 300, right? Well, why is there still a lot of well underutilized facilities, underutilized land? And I think I think it's really a lack of maybe a vision, maybe lack of imagination, but I think the the economics of those spaces come to play, right? Well, it's because they're too expensive to, to, to rehab, or maybe it's because, and this is where Thomas you, and, and Bo, you guys will have insight. It may be because the land use, from a zoning perspective, there may be limitations on how that land could be used. It has to be unlocked. And so I think these are some conversations we're going to have. Some other stats that I thought were really interesting is that from this report, 62% of the unaffiliated do not believe that houses of worship contribute to solving important social challenges. So again, I think it's like, well, as a church or, you know, you, and we, we, we talk about this and I think different church organizations, different denominations obviously have different views of the way they view mission specifically outreach, but from an architectural development standpoint, you know, it's still a programmatic challenge, right? And we don't, I don't think we always address the outreach component of these church organizations mission programmatically with the way we view the way they use their facilities. And I think that's the conversation we want to talk about today is like the obvious scenario that most people, when they see a church, I mean, I think when we look at Opelika right now, I can tell you, we have, we have three good sized churches and, and um, they also have an aggregation of land. And I mean, one right adjacent to where my office is right now, actually, is three and a half acres of asphalt. that's only used one day a week, uh, really Sunday morning. And then maybe Wednesday night, they have a partial, you know, where they fill that parking lot. And the rest of the time, it's, it's basically underutilized. And so you have to ask like, well, what there seems to be a better use of that land. And what I, one time we, we had this conversation, we, we said, you know, when we're thinking about the church, uh, I think it's easy for a church to see, Hey, how are we stewing our contributions So if we think about cold, hard cash, most churches say, yeah, we feel like this is how we're allocating to these. This is how we're allocating to our mission. But I think the harder and the higher level of, you know, ask is to say, well, what are you doing with your entire balance sheet? So if I took this piece of land that has value and we sold it, how would you actually steward that? Well, if you're uh, if you're not stewarding this piece of land to its highest and best use, is that true stewardship? And so I think there's some a lot of conversations that I think I think our listeners would be interested to have around around churches. And one more stat that I really think that to me was really eye-opening is that the average church in the US today spends half of its financial budget on a building, it only utilizes 5% of the week. So again, when we look at the facilities portion uh, or the land portion of, uh, of a church, it's really, it's either it's either adding value to the mission or it's detracting from. And so I think a higher level of programmatic look at the way churches are using their facilities um, is worth the conversation. So that's kind of, I've, I've set the stage for this conversation today. Um, So, Thomas, I think I'd like for you to ask some questions. Let's talk about the higher, like 40,000 foot view from a land use perspective. And maybe you and Bo both talk about what is this, the project that you guys now are calling um, the God's God's House Project. Tell me about how that derived kind of what you all saw in in this landscape of church uh, real estate and how it's being used and how that kind of derived you guys to start this project.
1: Thanks, Ty. I'm just, yeah, like you said, I'm gonna first just talk really briefly about you know, the, the, the land use policy overview. So really that would we're we're talking about churches and church land in the United States. Um I'm sure that a lot of what you just talked about is applicable to uh, you know, other countries with different urban fabrics, but I think from land use policy where where you know I can speak to that's that's really in the, uh in this country. And I would just say that. The church is dealing with a lot of the same issues that uh, our church land that the rest of the country is facing. We're spread out. We have lots of land, and the strong towns mission, the urban three mission, among other things, is recognizing that we we need to tighten our belts. We can't sustain the way that we developed post World War II, and so. I live in a town that's about a mile and a half square, and we have 24,000 people. And from a country point of view, that's very dense. If you compare that to Savannah, if you compare that to European town, we're actually not very dense at all. Uh, Beau Wright is in the next town over in Kennett, and I think they have probably about half the density. Um, Another municipality in between us has, again, half of of, uh, Kennett's density. Every single one of those municipalities says, we're built out. And so we, we, ha- we, ha- we have a culture in which we all assume, we all think, okay, we're built out. This is as much as we can do. And at the same time, we have land use policies that are reinforcing that and saying, yes, you are built out and zoning that says you can only have a single use for your land. So churches, I think, are awakening to the fact that we're, we're facing not being able to afford our infrastructure, tightening our belts, and that's the Strong Townsend Urban 3, really making that clear. And we're dealing with a housing crisis and we're looking at, you know, where, where's the economy going to go? And and to the point that you just made, we have all of this amassed wealth and land, we this inherited resource, and we're not stewarding it at all. And what can we be doing? And I think one of the first things that we need to recognize is that, well, one of the reasons we haven't done as a church much with our land is because it's been illegal to do much with our land, right? Like you can't go out there and do some of the stuff that Bo and I are drawing. And so I'm sure we'll get into it later, but this Durham project uh, that we were working on was really uh, the basis for a text amendment, which would be really cutting edge for the entire country, looking at legalizing certain uh, development on church property.
0: That's good, that's good.
2: Oh, you had Yeah. To- Yeah, Ty, I think you mentioned earlier, just kind of unlocking the value of the land. Uh, That's what, you know, zoning is what kind of locks in the value of the land that a lot of these churches are sitting on. Um, And, you know, the ability to go in and sort of unlock the value of that land through municipal goodwill that churches may or may not have, um, you know, creates an immense amount of value. I think there's a changing landscape kind of across America. It's slower than, uh, than we would all want, but you know, some of these different groups have been working on it for a long time. But I think slowly you're starting to see a loosening up of sort of exclusionary zoning. Um, you've seen in Minneapolis and I, I know Charlotte is working on something similar. Uh, Durham, which we can talk about in a second, is is working on something similar of allowing, um, you know, most of the city, 80 percent of America is single family homes. And so allowing different um Different property uses, you know, with within the city and within an urban environment, parking is another huge issue uh, that uh, that comes up in land development, and you're starting to see loosening of that. So I think there's opportunities opening up, um, and I would just say from a sort of forty thousand foot view, um, you know, the the zoning is something that's um, that's holding you know a lot a lot of these opportunities back. Also, think just we don't want to have a super theological conversation. But I think the church is sort of awakening to, um, you know, the, the this missional focus on on being good neighbors. Um, you know, I think often used in especially sort of Protestant circles is this Jeremiah twenty nine uh, to seek the welfare of the city. You know that 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 word shalom it's it's to seek the shalom of the city. That word means essentially like whole or complete. So what would it look like for churches to seek sort of the wholeness of their neighborhood? Um, I think that those are the two things that are happening. You have zoning and sort of in the urbanism world, you have sort of a loosening and, and maybe better practices coming in, again, very slowly. Uh, but you have, I think, at the same time, churches that are awakening to um, this this call that they have that's a biblical sort of injunction to seek the welfare of their city, to seek the welfare of their neighborhood, so I'm excited to see Christians kind of awakening. And I think there's sort of two forces coming together. That's that's an exciting time to be working on this.
0: Man, yeah, I think you're right. And I think I wanna, I wanna parking lot the zoning conversation. We'll come back to that because I think I have some questions around that. Cause I wanna, I wanna just for for some of our listeners who may not be, you know, completely in that, in that world and understand zoning, I want to ask some really practical questions around that. But we come back to, uh, I want to come back to the idea, though, just being a weight to, like, what does it look like to be a good neighbor, right? And um, and I think it's that, you know, I don't, I think when we, when you think about, I think when churches, um, obviously they have organizationally, um, you know, as far as their mission internally and what they're trying to accomplish, I don't know that facilities and the use of land, if that really does, I mean, I don't know if they're currently, thinking about that really is like, how, how can we unlock these assets to become better neighbors? And I think one question that, you know, we have to ask in this is that should, should churches even be stewarding real estate? Because now I think you could make an argument that says that really churches shouldn't be in the real estate business at all. You know, maybe it's better that they, you know, divest of these assets. Maybe they, you know, they should lease. There may be some really, you know, even if you look at it from an organizational clarity standpoint, there may be some really compelling reasons that churches shouldn't be in real estate. And um, and then this is a personal opinion. I think that's disappointing. I, I mean, I, you know, I would I would challenge that and then say and, and I could see both sides, but maybe maybe there is a place where churches are unique in their influence. And, you know, they have people in the pews. They have a human capital that can be energized. And in some ways, kind of lead some of these, uh, lead some, some of these uh, conversations forward that maybe even the private sector couldn't even do, especially when we talk about projects that maybe be measuring their, you know, their value, not in just economic value, but both in social and maybe even spiritual value. But the question is, is then what does it look like for a church to wear a different hat? And this is where we've, we've, um, you know, we had a project in Arvada, Colorado. If you, you know, many of our, some of our listeners may already be familiar with it because, because, uh, Pastor Kyle and, uh, Pete Oates were on, we talked about this kind of this project where basically what this, you know, their, their story is, is that they had, you know, they had gone into an old strip center and they basically had controlled 72,000 square feet of these anchoring stores. Um, and, uh, and so the strip center's value had gone down basically because of the presence of them in those spaces. Right. And so what we said, well, first of all, is, is we think, you know, the steward of that square foot footage for your size church is already all you're not stewarding that square foot because technically you're programmatically could fit in 30,000 square feet. So I think we have to shrink the footprint. Anyway, they took every recommendation we got. I mean, we took. They were really forward in the way they thought about that, um, and then they unlocked those spaces. Uh, it actually gave us an opportunity to acquire the rest of the center. Um, and I don't want to get too deep in that project, but the point is, is I think there's different avatars of churches, right, that are going to engage in this conversation. And I want to, I want to set that landscape as we talk. I think, I think number one is you've got churches that um, there's a churches that are affiliated versus unaffiliated. And what I mean by that is that, you know, like the Catholic church, like the Methodist church, there's some general hierarchy. A lot of times it takes the decision-making out of the local sphere. And I think that's one category of church. When we look at the way use of property, there's also churches that are growing and are looking at a new model of what church is and the way they can engage in the community and I think like I think our our um, you know uh, revived church in Arvada would kind of fit in that category and then I think there's churches that are you know simply they're shrinking um, they have aging congregations um, they have you know they have uh they have their they maybe short on congregation and long on land and so all three there's all these three different buckets that I think you know we have to kind of consider in the conversation um and so so yeah so I think Guys, why don't y'all talk a little bit about, I think, about the the Durham project? Cause I think that'll unlock some questions. And then I want to come back to some of these zoning questions. I think those are those are important. So kind of introduce the landscape of how did you guys get engaged in Durham? Um, what brought you there? What was the interest and kind of tell us about it?
2: Yeah, I'll I'll let Thomas uh, kind of introduce that. If I can just touch on one thing you just said, Ty. I mean, I, I definitely think churches today often see sort of you know their property and their building if they own it as a drag on the mission. Um and you know I think that's kind of historically been true. But I think you know if we can turn that around, I think there's a way for churches to see it as their biggest asset both financially and missionally. Like how do they use their church, their church property to engage the neighborhood? If I can throw out just one um one really good resource uh, and we can kind of plug it at the end. Uh, But there's something called the Proximity Project. I think you guys at Marsh Collective may have engaged with them before, but it's called the Proximity Project. It's run by Sarah Joy Propay, and she has a bunch of really great resources for churches to kind of start that conversation, to begin thinking about how to engage their neighborhoods. But Thomas, I'll let you introduce
1: kind of the Durham Project. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's such a good point. I think you're right, Ty, it would be disappointing for the only answer uh, to be that churches should not be in the real estate business, or at least in the land business. Um, churches across the country do have the human capital, but obviously, whether or, not, whether or not we think it's appropriate, they also have the land capital, and enough land capital that it can make a huge difference in the way that we engage with land use policy and the way that we as a country, as a culture engage with with housing, um, dealing with our current housing crisis. So I think um, they're in a position to be leaders and uh, really stewarding that land well, puts the, you know, what would, would, would allow churches and church leaders to really uh, engage and maybe lead some of the conversations now about uh, how we address some of these, these bigger issues. So, um, because they are tied. So Durham, uh, Aaron Lubeck, who I don't know if you know, he's head of uh, Southern Urbanism. He lives in in uh, in Durham. He had asked us to come down and lead a charrette for a number of church communities that were coming together, uh, partly under the, uh, the the Divinity School, the Ormond Center and Divinity School at Duke. They have a place making lab, and so they were looking at how do we use our land. Along the you know some of the conversation that we're having right now, and so uh, a few stats in Durham. There's over 500 faith-based parcels in Durham County. That's 2.25 square miles, which is huge, right? You know, I just said my my town right here is 1.5. We've got 24,000 people on it. So from a land point of view, it's a vast amount of land. Um, and of that 2.25, as you can imagine, you know, this is typical American uh, development it's vastly underutilized from a land point of view. And so Aaron had brought had asked us to come down and help these uh, four church communities design for a day, thinking about their mission, which included housing for uh, the Duke Hospital. It was like housing for Duke Hospital, uh, uh, attainable or affordable housing for community members, and then also elderly housing. And so it was a really great um experience working with them, the project was really intended to be uh, an argument for a text amendment that Aaron was putting forward, which would allow ADUs to be built on church land. And this specific text amendment would really be cutting edge because it would say churches can build unlimited ADUs up to 1,200 square feet without off-street parking. And the ADU movement is a really interesting one. It's one I've been tied into for for a number of years now, and it cuts through so much of the zoning codes that we've thrown up for a very long time. It for for churches, for example, you know, we we were addressing a couple different sites with church communities coming in and saying, "Hey, we we've got all this land. We're thinking we could put in three or four houses, and three or four houses would be great for their mission." But we start sketching out you know, 1,200 square foot ADUs on their land. And I think one of our sites, we got up to 75 units built around, you know, little courtyards. You know, it's not 75 and one cohesive, you know, uh, it's, it's 75 built out of like, you know, maybe 10 different clusters of, uh, uh, of little homes around squares. But that that was the impetus for the Durham thing. We, we introduced to them the God's house as a type and, you know, God's House Project being one of the things Bo and I are working on. The God's House is a development model from the, from Belgium uh, that dates back to the 1500s, 1400s. And it gets to actually the point that you were just talking about, you know, what is the church's role in housing and, and real estate? And in Belgium and Bruges specifically, you had merchants and guilds. Building buying land adjacent to churches, but the, the church didn't own the land, right? They were buying lots, a couple of lots adjacent to churches, and they would build anywhere from you know four to twenty little units as elderly housing, and they're breathtaking. It's it, they're remarkably beautiful. You're, you're walking there. There's a sense of like semi-private and semi-public at the same time. So I think one, one of the questions that a church community could, could come to the table and ask, you know, one, one of the things that they could show leadership on is what is it to have a home when we're in the final years of life, final stages of life? And when you walk through Bruges or in the Netherlands, they have versions of this called the hofje, and you're on a street and you walk through a little arched opening and there's a beautiful courtyard and the courtyard is, is formed by all these little homes, each one with a front door, the juxtaposition between that version of, of elderly living, you know, homes for elderly, where each person has the quiet courtyard, has the front door, and our institutional offerings today, it's it's a stark contrast. And so we'd introduce this concept to uh, the, the, the church communities in Durham, We'd put together a, a short video series you can find on YouTube. And I think Bo and I were both kind of blown away by the church's receptive, the church community's receptiveness to the concept. And while drawing with them, I think they were all very passionate about creating their own version of uh, God's house developments there in there. Yeah,
2: I can, I can dig in on that just real quick a little. I mean, we, we started sort of, as Thomas was alluding to, with sort of asking these churches, you know, what is your mission? So you have this campus and that, that campus ranged from, you know, some had around four acres, some had close to 20 acres. Um, so we asked them sort of, okay, you are the stewards of, of this land. These were both, I'd say it, two of them were in what more what I'd call urban context and two were in more suburban context. Um, you know, so, so the first question is what's your mission as a church? What, you know, where is God calling you? uh to serve the neighborhood around you and from that we began to design with them sort of participatory with them um you know around design housing around uh around their property i think it's amazing thomas had these kind of little cutouts it's hard to describe but these little cutouts that were at scale with uh you know a map printout of their church and it's little cutouts that are basically housing typologies And so you would sit down with with some of these different church groups and they'd say, um, well, I think we can build four housing units on our on our property. And you'd sort of overlay this uh, this stencil piece that Thomas had of this typology. And you'd say, well, I don't know, but like I'm just overlaying this and it looks like you could fit like 70 uh, homes here. Like in we weren't trying to sort of shove density, but it's showing that you can utilize the land to create beauty, to create spaces, to sort of shape the property in certain ways. So that was sort of eye-opening. And it was really great to see the churches sort of it that click for them of, um, you know, realizing just how much potential that their land has, um, what all they could do. I think it even kind of stretched their sort of mission. You know, they come in thinking, well, we can provide four housing units for, you know, for X people. Uh, And they leave saying, well, Wow, I think we could do like 40 or 50 units, and that would really allow us to serve both people, you know, in our congregation as well as people, you know, in our city that need housing. Uh, so that that was really encouraging to see. And again, this was across several different sort of denominational backgrounds, which was really interesting to see how each of these groups sort of engage with this question of how to utilize their land.
0: Yeah. Um, so going back to the zoning, that zoning question, I think. I think I have some questions and I want to I want to kind of react to around. And I want to make sure I understood that, I mean, the higher conversation around around zoning and it relates to churches. I mean, are you are you guys maybe and through the work that you and Aaron worked on specifically for Durham? Is there kind of a discovery process where it's going to be like a unique overlay that would would apply to specific kind of subset of church property? Am I hearing that right, where it's basically, will churches be able to maybe look at, have different density options and different kind of typology options that may not be specific to the zone they're in? Is that kind of what you guys are alluding to, or am I missing that?
1: So currently, um, the country, almost the entire country is zoned single use for, for all of the land that we have. That's so true. churches are going to, Fall into a category in which they can build and utilize their church. They can park their church. They can um, probably put in uh, some kind of rectory. Maybe they can have a school building, and a couple other affiliated things, but they can't buy, right build housing units, or and the, and they're they're not going to be able to do that on their land, right? They could they could have a land lease. They could do different things. They can subdivide, obviously. ADUs are a really interesting tweak. To uh zoning that really got talked about in the 90s as baby boomers were trying to care for their parents. It was one of the first generations that was realizing they couldn't put in, let's say, you know, people call them a granny flap, you couldn't convert your garage into a little dwelling unit for your elderly loved one to, to so that you could give them both uh you know proximity to you, but also. A little uh, their own space and so it kind of fizzled out in the 90s i think vancouver had adopted some adu policies there that and and so canada has been kind of running with it for a while and then post 2008 the conversation really started to pick up again as we were facing this housing crisis as we're as we're realizing that we just painted ourselves into the corner with our zoning codes. And there's a huge amount of underutilized land. Churches have the land, but it's also in your backyard. You've just got, we're we're surrounded by land that we can't use. And so the ADU policies in California that have kind of been moving uh, uh, westward, usually say, hey, you can put one ADU on your single family lot. And some places have gone as far as um, Atlanta, Georgia, which say, you know, you can get away with, I think three. This would be groundbreaking because it would bring it to churches, which in the case of Durham, you know, let's say they have five, six acres. It's a text amendment to an existing policy under the umbrella of, I think what's called the simplifying codes for affordable housing. And it would say churches, no matter what that church is, can build unlimited ADUs, 1200 square foot ADUs. On their property with no off-street parking, and so it doesn't. You know, both the suburban and the urban versions of that can go to town with with where they think that's appropriate. Now, Bo talks about you know, like we can we can draw these lovely little clusters of housing, and maybe there's room for seventy-five. And I think that just takes the question to the next step. Like it moves the ball forward in address. You know, churches addressing, hey, how do we live out our mission? Because obviously finance, you know, how are you going to finance any of this? How are you going to build any of this? How do you, you know, uh, endow this or is this going to be underwritten housing? You know, but I think, I think it's a really important to get that plan so that you can start that next conversation. And Aaron has, uh, said, it, there's been really great feedback from the churches who are now eager and kind of anxious to see something move forward. Right. They now have these plans showing, Hey, we can actually do something with our, with our land. And now they're starting to ask the questions about financing models, about maintenance models, about, you know, is this part of our uh, you know, non non-taxable land? What what do how do we now manage? Like, how do we take that next step? And so this, you know, drawing the plans is just one step, but I think it's allowing churches to start to ask the next questions.
0: Well, I think that's, you know, that's the funny thing. I mean, and that's been our experience too, is when, especially when we think in the context of churches, when when you can clarify a vision with, with clarity. And so like, like you said, where you have a plan and a vision around, Hey, this is a new way to think about it. And you put it in front of a congregation who can be activated. It's, it's always amazing to us to see the provision that comes. So I think that step is an important step, but going a little bit deeper, I want to talk about the, again, it's that intersection of purpose or mission and profits really that and financing that really is, I think, needs more massaging to understand. Because again, what we're asking the churches to do in this case, unless we really come up with a development model that makes sense, and maybe you guys have already kind of thought through that and unlocked it some, is that we're asking a church to put on a developer hat. In some ways, we're going to have to kind of demystify what that really is, right? Um, Because, I mean, like you said, are we asking churches to underwrite essentially residential housing I mean, are they? And does that mean they're going to take on the role of property management? Are they going to take on the role of, you know, of you know, stewarding and construction management? There's all these disciplines that have to be wrestled. You know, I think it's I think it'd be worthwhile to have and talk about this for a second. Is to say, well, you know, what really, what is the kind of the the convergence of both private, church, nonprofit? and civic, right? Because we, we we have this zoning piece, right? What's the net benefit for the city? And if and if we talk about from a tax-based standpoint, one of the advantages of the project is it is on a tax um, advantageous property. But so does the city even get to participate in that unless it's producing some sort of sales tax generating? So then you have to ask that question. So if I'm looking at this Venn diagram, where, where are we maximizing maximizing uh, value for all three of those participants. And then where does private development actually can intersect with the church? Y'all have any thoughts on that, or maybe you guys can, can, can riff on that for a minute.
2: Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think there's so many opportunities there and ways that uh, that churches could engage with this. I mean, I think the the first thing is just to say, Ty, what, you know, what you were just saying with, when churches have a vision, when any institution, but churches have a vision for how to utilize their property, you know it 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 opens resources, and that's the first step. Is what is that vision? And I think doing sort of the the charrette style um, kind of engagement that we did, a gives them a vision in terms of um, you know written text of of what's their mission, how are they going to engage that community, but also gives them something extremely important, which is visuals that are beautiful and show what their property could be and how it could engage the neighborhood. So that's the first step, is to get people excited with the vision. And then it's, okay, how, how do we do this? Um, and I think there's a lot of different ways that that churches could go about that. I mean, um, I know of churches partnering with sort of mission aligned developers, maybe those developers are within their church or within their congregation, or maybe it's someone they know in the community, that's an opportunity. Um, you know churches should certainly sort of seek counsel in that as they're engaging with different developers um but developers i mean uh, developers today as as everyone listening will know have a bad rap for um you know a lot of what we have built in the past 50 years has been ha- has not been thoughtful and has not contributed to the common good but there are a lot of developers out there that want to do that that want to be contributing to the common good uh in, in the good of their city. So so find those developers, engage with them is one option. I think another thing to think through is um, you know, does the church sell that property off or do they do they retain ownership? I would advocate strongly for them to sort of retain ownership if if at all possible. There's lots of, and again people can talk you through this, but there's lots of opportunities, whether it's a ground lease or land lease that can be sort of financially beneficial to uh, to that church. Um, I mean, Ty, I've heard you and John say, um, you know, the thing that March Collective, I think this is a a sort of Johnism um, of saying, what can you do for your city um, that, you know, that lasts 50 years and has an impact and no one can undo it. That's the way churches should be thinking about, especially if they own their land. That's the way they should be thinking about their neighborhood and their city is what can we do with the, you know, the assets, the land that we have that we're stewards of it that benefits this community for the next 50 years and no one can undo it. I think if you ask that question of your congregation, sit down with a whiteboard, you would come up with, let's create something really beautiful that engages the neighborhood, uh, that as people pass by, you know, is a pleasant experience. And they say that church is up to something good. Um, You know, if churches start there and have a vision, I think the resources are there. Uh, There's ways of doing this. You know, it's a process but, um, you know, the resources are there um, and, you know, the, the, the people God will bring the people, you know, to their doorstep that they need. And there's lots of resources. You know, uh, this is, again, what Thomas and I are trying to do with the God's House Project. Uh, I know Marsh Collective does a lot of this with different kind of uh, partners. So there's lots of resources out there for people who can sort of hold the church's hand through the development process, whether they are. Sort of whether that's demystifying the process for them so that they can engage with it or whether that is, you know, helping them partner with a um, developer in their community who who can sort of walk them through it. But I think the biggest thing for churches to know is like they can do this. The resources are there. Um, You know, financially, the resources will be there. Land use, people can help them figure that out. Retaining ownership, you know, there's ways of figuring that out and, and ways that it can be beneficial even for the long term.
0: Yeah, no, I think that I think that retaining ownership piece of the puzzle is one of the probably the what we experienced been the biggest deterrence because, you know, I think a lot of a lot of churches see land obviously as a stable asset. Hey, we should own it forever. Um, We don't want to give up our position in that. And I I think that is a stopgap a lot of times for thinking about these conversations. Like I said, but we've seen some unique structures. I mean, one, I mean. You know, one being the land lease tool. I mean, I think that is a tool, and I think many developers who haven't used that mechanism before think, "Well, how do you finance that?" Well, there is ways to finance that to make leases assignable, and I think that should be an exploration that should be maybe thought of as a tool in the toolbox. Um, the other, the other, the other piece that is, um, you know, from an ownership standpoint is like you said. I think churches generally should have a seat at the table because we need to be pressing on the spreadsheet-driven development. And I think if there's anybody that could sit at the table and say, hey, we're going to build and develop it for love's sake, I think having that seat and using influence in that way could drive product in a certain way. Um, and what I mean there is that there's a, whether it's, you know, we think about the traditional LPGP structure, um, you know, churches could participate. In structure, whether it's on the LP or GP side, even at the basic level of as a land contribution being an LP position in a project, and so uh, and a nonprofit could be just like any other beneficiary investor in that. So, I think there needs to be an open conversation on the on the actual finance side or deal structuring side where hey, there's there's ways to unlock this as long as you know you know. You're looking. You have a vision that you're wanting to attain, and then you can find thoughtful partners to help you walk through that. Um, and so, I do think that's an important part of the part of the conversation. Um, so, guys, what, talk a little bit about what you guys see about maybe advancing this conversation forward. What do you think? You know, this God's House project for you guys. What are the next kind of steps? How are you advancing this conversation? Um, if, as far as anybody that's listening you know, how would they connect with you guys? What do you think? Or like, say, so say I'm a church or a private developer who has, man, like I have this thing in my town. I really want to solve this problem. How can they engage you guys? Or like, what's my next step?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm going to give an answer to that. I, I also want to address kind of what you and Bo were talking about a second ago. I think that the, the solutions that churches can come up with are going to be exciting to see in the coming years. And I think that there's going to be a vast, uh, you know, different, there's going to be a huge number of different uh, scenarios that are going to be uh, possible and that uh, churches can play a role. They can bring a perspective to the table that our current development models just don't do. Our Excel spreadsheets don't have the timeframes that churches do. And I think churches can bring that human perspective that, generations and our culture desires you know we're, we're building most of our developments now to last let's say 30 years that's not a lifetime you know so let's say that you're <clears throat> you, you and your family live in a town are, are are you going to be you know where are you going to be buried where where were your parents buried where were your grandparents buried you know these these longer questions of you know you know and we were talking about elderly housing is this a place that is part of the community in which generations of, of grandparents have, have lived there, because we can look overseas and we can look to other towns, villages, and cities where that is the model. And so I think on um, that time frame, that different, uh, uh, perspective churches, uh, can bring to the table, which I think is going to be really valuable. And they're only going to be able to do that if they somehow or other can, um, retain control. Now I would say that in the Catholic church, uh, there has been a, a new uh, institute, Fitzgerald Institute, at the University of Notre Dame. And there's a guy, uh, David Murphy, who's running that. And it's been interesting to see some of the stuff that they are kind of uncovering and, and leading. One of them was, you know, what there are a lot of buildings that these churches own. So how do we utilize the existing structures? So there's a monastery in, um, I think, outside Santa Barbara, which a classmate, uh, somebody who's a year under me uh, in school, She's helping lead, and what they're doing is they're, this is a huge uh, kind of monastery complex with not, you know, maybe, maybe just a couple of people living there uh, related to the church. So they've turned it into essentially dorms for young, mission-driven uh, uh, people living out there. I think there's like a, you know, it's kind of like college, I think there's a boy's side, there's a girl's side, there's communal uh Eating eating rooms, and I think maybe they eat together once or twice a week. They do different uh, like backpacking and stuff together. But it's a way of living in community for a fraction of the price in Santa Barbara. You know, I don't know what rent is out there, but they probably share bathrooms. You know, but this is a this is a an example of rethinking church-owned property for the good of the community, specifically young people who would otherwise have to leave Santa Barbara. So I think there are going to be a lot of different versions of of church communities looking at their assets, whether that's raw land, if that's buildings that are underutilized and things like that and coming up with different options. The God's house is a specific model, similarly, similar to the the Hoffia in the Netherlands, which is small single story housing designed for elderly around courtyards. You find them embedded in, walkable urban centers and when you when you see one when you experience one i think one of the unique aspects that will jump out at you is that it prolongs the agency of the individual the person and that that person that elderly person i remember being in a god's house sketching back in 2017 and watching an elderly person with a walker leave their front door and they had a front door on a courtyard right this is An elderly person that in the States would probably be in an institutional building. And if they open up their front door, they're on a a carpeted hallway and they can't actually leave their institution because they no longer can drive. And so they're waiting for a bus or something like that. So I'm in Bruges and I'm watching an elderly person open up their front door. They step out of the single floor, single story building, right? It's accessible into a courtyard with their walker. They walk out of the courtyard onto the main street and while I'm still there sketching, she walks back with two grocery bags on either side of her walker. So the agency that that enabled her to, you know, live out, be part of the community and be, um, you know, today we segregate elderly very often. You know, every, everything's segregated by cars, but our institutional elderly offerings do that to an extreme. And so uh, the God's House are a model of, you know, creating a home for elderly and I think that you could take the best of that old world urban type and marry it with the best of, let's say, accessible elderly living today in uh, in single story units. And so, you know, in Durham, we're introducing this type. Uh, we've been speaking about this, writing about this, uh, posting some videos about this. And really, our goal is to engage with the elderly living industry, elderly living in the United States, set this new model, but specifically for churches who have this longer time frame. And I just want to speak just a second about that, because I think very often the mission might be providing attainable housing or affordable housing or elderly housing. But I think that the church can show leadership in doing even more than that, because I think that the God's house is is an example of uh something that reflects like the individual person more than you know a unit is a unit a unit like units are not just comparable and some of them have beautiful garden courtyards and some of them don't and we as human beings you know we have a foot in both worlds right we have a foot in this physical world we have a a foot in a spiritual world of the beyond, so how do you create a home for yourself in this world? You know, we're always, we're never going to be truly at home. But if we're shaping the world, if one of our callings is to shape the world as a home, then we need to ask for more than what bricks can naturally give us. We have to, we have to design and build places that reflect partly that spiritual nature of of, of who we are. And I think the God, the God's house are an amazing example of that when you when you experience them. And I think they provide elderly housing, but they also create via the beauty, via the garden, an image of the person, of the individual, which we've lost in our modern culture, in our modern you know, development world. And I think it would take a perspective like a church to bring that back. And I have this great quote from Roger Scruton, he says, through the pursuit of beauty, we shape the world as our home and come to understand our own nature as spiritual beings. And I think that when people encounter the images of the historic God's house in Hafia, they recognize that. Yeah, that's 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 amazing. Uh, Ty, I can touch real quick on
2: just your question of how to sort of engage with us. Uh, we have a just kind of landing page that we've uh, created that's uh godshouseproject.com um we should spell god's house because we were using sort of the traditional spelling which is um god G O D S, and then house is h-u-i-s so god's house project um, people can find more information there and get in touch with us again the god's house is a is a type of sort of a typology that churches might use to engage their neighborhood, but it's not the only type. There's other sort of mission aligned opportunities for churches to engage their neighborhood. Um, If Thomas and I can be a resource, we'd love to be a resource for churches. We also, you know, know a lot of the other resources kind of um, out there and are happy to connect people with those if we're not the right fit.
0: That's good. Well, guys, one thing about, I want to come back to Thomas's thing is that, you know, when, when I was, um, I listened to a podcast, it was, it was Andy Crouch, another, um, another great thinker um, and I think John Mark Homer so it was their podcast together and at the end of it they basically had a call to developers it was like we need good design and you know Andy if you know anything about him he's been really kind of penetrating how technology is affecting us you know from a community standpoint he's got a lot of great books around that but one of the things he he brought you know forward is this idea you know like if you think about development, like most of our development over the last, you know, half century has been to really um, encourage atomization. In other words, the individual, right? Um, our individual needs. And so like even the American dream, right? Includes that white picket fence, right? Hey, um, it's a barrier. And I think, I do think there's a, a longing for a deeper level of that going back to where the household and not just a household, the nuclear family, but, but where your relationships are actually enriched beyond that, uh, where you want to be, you know, it's, it's one thing um, to, be, uh, to, to, to be loved, but it's a totally different thing to be known and loved, right? To be truly known. And so I think that's what the church has the ability to do is really think thoughtfully and actually push on that atomization development to a more community. I'm not talking about commune, okay? I'm talking about true uh, community with the right boundaries, but but also this multi-generational, um, you know, uh, that, that I think we long for. Um, yeah, so I think it's a really interesting, and I think I'm so happy and encouraged by your guys' work. Um, so thank you for joining us. And to Bo's uh, point too, I do think there's a whole nother conversation around, we, we talked a lot, Thomas and Bo talked a lot about the use of land, uh, specifically this typology of adding residential on the church property. Uh, but what we didn't focus as much is about, well, what do I do if I have, you know, I've got 20,000 square foot of, you know, this facility that's currently we're not utilizing. I mean, and, and if we are utilizing, we're only utilizing one day a week. And I think that's, a, that's also a really compelling question. And I think there's a lot of conversation now around, well, programmatically, operationally, is there opportunities there? We've seen some pretty unique things done in some churches. We've seen churches that are, you know, incubating other churches, especially like bilingual churches and things that are having opportunities to share space. Um, we're seeing the infusement of different, um, you know, different social things. And so if you have questions around that, you can feel free to, to reach out to us at Marsh Collective. Um, And we can add value to these conversations. So guys, I can't uh, thank you enough for joining me today. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Ty. Thank you. Thanks for having us.